Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. Don Wardlaw was a wonderful man of God. He was a great pastor, a powerful evangelist, and a big help to H.E. Schmuel and Leonard Sankey through the ministry of IHC. This sermon was preached at his home church in 1983, and it's titled, Not For Sale. He passed away in 1992, but his ministry lives on today through the ministry of Convention Pulpit. I know you're going to enjoy this wonderful sermon. First Kings chapter 21, and uh, <clears throat> we want to look at the scripture together. <clears throat> we're finding the place. I want again to say we're so delighted to have each of you here. And uh, we have some here who haven't been here for quite a while. I think we have at least one or two who have not been in the service, to my knowledge, before. We want to welcome you, uh, not only this morning, but welcome you back to each and every service of the church. <clears throat> First Kings chapter 21. We begin to read it verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that Naboth the Jezreelite had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, hard by the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house, and I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it, or, if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it me that I should give the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. And Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he laid him down upon his bed and turned away his face and would eat no bread. I want to read some other verses, but I want to stop there and interpret what I've just read. <clears throat> Do you know what the king is doing here? Now the King James Bible is... It's interesting for its language, and I appreciate it. But this translated from the Hebrew into the Greek, from the Greek into the English, and from the English into my translation literally means that the king was having a real pouting spell. 
That's exactly what he was doing. He just simply came home and pouted. Of course, nobody here ever pouted in their life, except some people I could name, and I won't. But anyway, <clears throat> this is what's happening. I want you to get the picture of what's happening. Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is thy spirit so sad that thou eatest no bread? He said unto her, Because I spake unto Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said unto him, Give me thy vineyard for money, or else, if it please thee, I will give thee another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give thee my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said unto him, Dost thou now govern the kingdom of Israel? Aren't you king here? Get up. Go eat your supper. And let's have a party. Let thine heart be merry. I will give thee the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. She wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal, and sent the letters unto the elders and to the nobles that were in his city, dwelling with Naboth. And she wrote in the letters, saying, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth on high among the people, and set two men, sons of Belial, before him, to, to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king. Then carry him out and stone him that he may die. The men of his city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in the city, did as Jezebel said unto them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto him. They proclaimed a fast, set Naboth on high among the people. There came in two men, children of Belial, and sat before him. The men of Belial witnessed against him, even against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. Then they carried him forth out of the city and stoned him with stones that he died. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth is stoned and is dead. When they heard it, Jezebel went in and told Ahab, Go and take possession of the vineyard. Naboth is dead. And Naboth, Naboth uh, rather Ahab, went down to inhabit, take possession of the vineyard. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. Thank God for the prophet. The word of the Lord came to the prophet. If you'll read the rest of this chapter, you'll find out what the prophet said, and uh, you'll find out what happened in the rest of this story, and that's not what I want to talk to you about this morning. I'd like to talk to you about a man <clears throat> that I feel, and I'm certain, when God begins to hand out rewards, this man is going to be high in the annals of heroes of Scripture, Naboth. We know very little about him. We know very little about the history of his family. We do know where he lived. We do know something about his character. But uh, other than that, we know very little about this man. However, out of this dark story, out of this tragedy in the life of King Ahab and the history of Israel, from this story comes one of the most sterling characters in all of the Old Testament. Naboth stands head and shoulders above 
Many of the people of his day, perhaps most of them, you Bible historians will remember that the history and the history of Israel, this is a low time spiritually. It is a time of decay. It is a time of sin and wickedness. Ahab was bad enough. He was a wicked man. But the Bible tells us that in, he added to his wickedness in that he married a wicked woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel was such a wicked individual and such a foul person until 3,000 years after her life and after her death, her name still is synonymous with wickedness, especially the sins of pride and, and, uh, and the things that go along with that kind of a life. You see a person who is a, a woman especially who is really bedecked and bejeweled and, and uh, to the extreme wickedness we Sometimes say she was a real Jezebel. And I want to tell you, that is not a compliment. And so he added to his sins that he had sinned in marrying this wicked woman. She was a worshiper of a false god, and she brought the worship of this false god into the kingdom. She was also a very domineering woman. That's a very fancy way, that's a French way of saying she was bossy. And she sort of, uh, she ruled things. And uh, you can see here, Ahab was, a, was uh, not the kind of a man he should have been. And uh, uh, being rather spineless and, and uh, not having courage as he ought to have. When he didn't get his way, he came home like a spoiled little guy that he was. Turned his face to the wall and had a pouting spell. And Jezebel came in and she said, aren't you king here? Uh, don't you run this kingdom? Why don't you find a way to get this? And she said, I'll take care of this character myself. If that's what you want, that's what you'll have. Let's have a party. And so they start partying. I read in your hearing where she wrote, she wrote the letters and she sealed them with the, the sign and the seal of King Ahab. And uh, the dastardly deed is done. The owner of the vineyard is killed. And Ahab goes to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. But in spite of the fact that he lost his life, and in spite of the fact that we hear no more about him, he's gone. Naboth is one of the sterling characters in all of Scripture. I'd like to talk to you about him this morning for a little while, as God will help us. I have great admiration for this man. I believe there's some things about his character that you and I ought to have in our characters. God would help us as New Testament Christians to live with the kind of principles in our, in our heart that this man had living so long ago in the old day. I would remind you, first of all, that Naboth is the kind of a man who would not violate the Word of God. When it came to the point where he, was, he would either violate the word of God and sell his property to the king or he would stand against the king and all the government and all that he represented. He would stand against him in obedience to the word of God 
He chose to obey the Lord. Thank God for people who choose to obey the Lord. Now, lest I be misunderstood here, I want to say that I believe in keeping the laws of the land. I believe that we ought to be law-abiding citizens. However, it is not the province of government to make laws which force us to violate scriptural commandments and scriptural principles. And there is a higher law than the law of the land. Now, that doesn't mean that you just have the right to pick and to choose which laws that you want to obey and which laws you don't want to obey. But when there is a clear conflict between the law of the land and the law of God, friend, you and I have as Christian people, we are under a higher law than the law of the land. And here's a man who lived under a wicked king. This man was wicked. And he asked him to do something which would violate God's word. Let's go back to the book of Leviticus. Those of you who have your Bibles with you and care to follow along, go back to chapter 25 of Leviticus, where the laws are being given, particularly the laws, various and sundry laws, concerning the redemption of land and the redemption of servants and, and uh, the year of Jubilee and all of this that was given. In verse 23 of this chapter, you'll find these words, The land shall not be sold forever. For the land is mine, and ye are strangers and sojourners in it. And in all the land of your possession, ye shall grant a redemption for the land. Then God made provision, so that if there was a Jewish individual, a man, a family, which through sickness or through some misfortune, became poor. They had bills they weren't able to meet. They could sell that land to another Hebrew. This land would be sold at a certain price. The price to be negotiated by both buyer and seller with in mind that after a period of time this land would go back to the original owners. If you'd care to study something concerning Jewish history, you'll find something called the Year of Jubilee. The Year of Jubilee was every 50th year. And at that 50th year, then the land would go back to its rightful owner, or its original owner. That's the way God had, of one of the ways he had of distributing the land and distributing the ownership making sure that there would not be despotic landowners who would oppress the people, being sure that his people had the property that was given to their families. You remember, don't you, that when the tribes came to the land of Israel, they were, they were given a certain amount of land. Each tribe was given an amount of land. And the families of that tribe were given a particular section of land in that lot that fell to the tribes. Now, Naboth was not poor. He wasn't going to the king and saying, King, I have a property here, and my wife has been sick, and my children have been sick, and I've suffered financial reverses, and I want to sell this piece of property to you, and uh, I'll, it'll be, I'll either redeem it, or I'll get it back at the year of Jubilee, and uh, I, I'll need to pay my bills. There wasn't anything about that at all. The king just became envious. He said it would be a good place for me to raise my herbs, and I'd like that for my garden. 
And so he said to Naboth, sell me this place. I'd like to have it for my own. And Naboth in his heart, Naboth saw a conflict between the request of the king and the word of God. Notice what he says here in this portion of scripture. Here in 1 Kings chapter 21, he said in verse 4, verse 3 rather, God forbid, the Lord forbid it me that I should give thee the inheritance of my fathers. I will not sell this property to you. This belonged to my fathers. It is mine by right of inheritance, and I'm going to keep it. I have no intention of selling it to you. It would be a violation of the word of Almighty God. If you want to find another scripture along this line, turn to, to the book of Numbers, chapter 36 and verse 7. So shall not the inheritance of the children of Israel removed from the children of Israel, or removed from tribe to tribe. For every one of the children of Israel shall keep himself to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. If he sells this property, he is doing something to the inheritance. He is forfeiting his inheritance. He is violating the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, you and I need to become so rooted and so grounded in the scripture until it becomes a part of our very being and our thinking. Until when choices come up and when the, to follow the choice would be to violate the word of God we need to draw some lines in our life and say, by the grace of God, I will not violate God's word. If you want to get in trouble, friend, in trouble spiritually and in trouble any other way, you start violating God's word. I think one of the reasons why we're in the political mess we're in our world today, not just in our nation, but in our world, we're not following Bible principles. Brother, if you follow the Bible, it'll always work. God had the, he has the best plan. He had the best plan. He still has the best plan today. And the problem is that people have sold out. They have violated the, the word of God. You and I must never violate what God teaches us in his word. Amen. I thank God that I have this drilled in me and instilled in me as a child. But I have had plenty of opportunity to test it. Not that I have been asked by any king to sell any property because I, first of all, don't know any kings. And the second thing, I don't own any property. But there have been some times that I had plenty of opportunity and pressure was put on me to violate the word of God and to do things that I knew God had said not to do. My wife and I were just first married. We had moved to uh, Cincinnati, and I was attending God's Bible school. I was working in a hospital. And uh, I was really getting rich. I was making 98 cents an hour. And, uh, <laughs> and we were having a good time serving the Lord and establishing our home. But uh, I remember one day that uh, a certain thing happened in the, in the course of my work in the hospital. Before they had the days when the oxygen was piped up through the walls and you just plug into the oxygen outlet in the room, back in the good old days when you had to carry the oxygen bottles around. And uh, so that was part of my job. And I was called to a room one evening where a man was in an oxygen tent. He was a very, very wealthy man. 
and uh, he was had had a heart attack, and the doctor had prescribed oxygen. So I went into his room to change the tank, and he was upset. And uh, <clears throat> I suppose I could have been a little more diplomatic about it. He said to me, "Is there any oxygen in that tank?" I brought a full bottle. I was going to change it. That was my job. He said, is there any oxygen left in that old tank? Well, I could look at the dial. I knew immediately when I walked in the room and looked at that dial, there wasn't any oxygen in that tank at all. Probably what I should have done would just said, well, uh, my job is not to, uh, my job is just to deliver the oxygen. My job is not to meter it and so forth, and you'll have to ask the nurse about it. But he asked me, and I didn't have any better sense than to tell him. He asked me a question. I said, no, there isn't. And I showed him the, the uh, dial, and the dial was on zero, and I hooked him up, and I got him going again, and got oxygen going into his, into his uh, little tent that he had over him. And uh, I'd done my job, so I went, at quitting time, I went home. The next day when I got to work, I had a little note attached to my time card, signed by my supervisor. Please come to my office immediately. So... I went to her office immediately. I figured that's what she wrote, that's what she meant, and she did. She asked me to sit down. She said, Were you, did you do a certain thing last night? Did you change an oxygen bottle? I said, yes, I did. She said, did you tell the man it was empty? I said, he asked me. She said, was it empty? I said, it was. She said, why did you tell him it was empty? He asked me. She looked at me and said something I'd never heard before. She said, you know, you're going to have to learn to lie if you're successful working in this job. And I said, well, I guess I'll never be a success. Do you know what the Bible says about liars? It says, all liars have their part in the lake of fire. And that somehow was driven into me as a boy. Until I got on the job, I realized I could have been more diplomatic about it. Looking back on it, I can see where I didn't have to say anything. I could just have changed the thing and walked out. I tell you what that fellow did. He got so mad and upset. Maybe I should say upset, but I think he really got mad. Anyway, he got his telephone. He called the doctor. He got his doctor out of bed at about 10.30 at night. And the doctor called the nursing supervisor and got her out of bed, and she had to come down to the hospital. They had to give that fellow a rather stiff shot or something to get him calmed down and knock him out so he could sort of uh, make a deal with him. And then I caught the blame because I told him the truth. Well, that's just a small illustration. I'm still glad I didn't lie to him. Hey, man. I recognize I might have handled a little more diplomatically but friends, here is the truth I'm trying to get across to you this morning. And I believe God wants us to understand this. That there is a supreme law. And we find the supreme law in the Holy Scriptures. And when there are things that conflict, when there are things that would come in conflict with the Bible, you and I must take our stand with the Bible. Amen. Now, some of you are not near as puzzled as you look this morning. There's a man who would not violate the Word of God. And you and I, friend, need to find out what God's Word has to say about some things. Amen. Men and women alike 
in our deportment, in our dress, in our conduct, in the things that we allow and the things that we do not allow, we need to find out what God has to say about it and then make up our mind we will not violate the plain teaching of the Word of God. Amen. I'll say it myself. Here's a man in the second place who had more than a preference. Do you know the difference between a preference and a conviction? Here's a man who had a conviction. Now this thought is not original with me. I picked this up from Attorney Gibbs. Heard him speak about this and I immediately thought of Naboth when I thought of this, this particular truth. Here's a man who had a conviction. He didn't just have a preference. It wasn't just his preference that he lived the way he lived. He had a conviction that he ought to live this way. And there's a vast amount of difference between you and I having a preference towards something or having a conviction that it's, that is the way it ought to be. Oh, that God will help some of us, all of us, in this church this morning, that the things that we do and the things that we say and the way we live is more than just a preference. Amen. We talk about convictions. Ladies and gentlemen, we ought to be people of strong Bible convictions. God's people have always been people of conviction. There have been people who stood for something. There have been people who drew some lines and came to the place in their lives where they said, this is as far as we're going to go. This is the boundary line. We will not cross the boundary. Amen. Amen. I like to see our young people get to the place where things are really convictions. They are really, they, they, they would rather, they would rather die than violate them. Here's a man who would rather die than violate his conviction. This is mine. God has given this land to my fathers. This is in the inheritance. And this is given to me by God and is, it is purchased by blood. And I am, I am going to keep this. I don't just have a preference for it. I am convict. I am convinced in my heart. This is what I ought to do. Several months ago, it's been just be well. It's been getting into years now. Not too long before we moved here, perhaps a year or so. I'd had uh, occasion to observe the conduct of some young people who'd been attending a Bible school. Bible school has rather strict uh, rules and, and uh, standards of conduct for their young people. I'll tell you which one it is. Several of them have those. And they ought to have strong convictions and strict rules. I feel good about having my children in a place that has some rules. I don't want them just turned loose. But uh, be that as it may, I had occasion to observe some of these young people who had been attending this school, and I, I knew that as soon as school was out, a lot of things were done that were not in harmony with the rules. Well, I didn't uh, criticize the young people. I went to one of the administrators of the school, and I said, Brother so-and-so, I didn't mention any names, and I said, I am concerned about the young people that attend the institution of learning where you are. I am concerned that the young people understand and get some things in their own heart. 
If it's just rules laid on them, if it's just somebody says you can't while you're here, so that it gives you the impression when you're out of here, you can do what you want to do. And I told him that I had an opportunity to observe some of the students from the school which he represented, and I said, I know that you wouldn't put up with what they did, and I know their parents wouldn't put up with what they did, and I'm concerned that God will help you to get these young people to have some real convictions of their own. Young people, in your early in your Christian experience, get the Word of God and settle some things for yourself. If you don't do it, you're going to get into confusion. You're going to drift along in the sea until you won't know where you are. Draw some lines in your life. You know one of the reasons why Lot got in the trouble he got into? He didn't have any boundary lines. Never one time in his life that we can find in the Scripture did Lot ever say, this is it. But you remember that he looked towards Sodom and he wanted to go there? And he started pitching his tent towards Sodom? And the first thing you know, he's living there. And I'm sure that the first morning when he and Uncle Abram stepped out on the plain and looked over that beautiful valley and he looked back on the mountains behind him and he made his choice, if you'd have said to him that day, Lot, there's coming a time when you're going to be living right in that city and your children are going to be involved in the sin of that city and you're going to lose your children and they're going to be destroyed and even your wife is going to die because of the sin of that city. Lot would have said to you, it'll never happen to me. I'll never go that far. You'll never find me in Sodom. But he did. And he did it because he was not a man of conviction. He was not a man who could draw lines in his life. He was not a man who could set boundary lines and say, These I, this thing I will not do by the grace of God. Oh, how important it is that you and I come to a place where we have some convictions. Not just a preference. This has come in the Christian day school movement until there have been parents who didn't just have a preference that they would send their children to a Christian school. They had a conviction they must. When they stood before the judge and the judge said, you're either going to do what we want you to do or we're going to take your children from you. From you. They didn't waver. They, didn't, they looked him straight in the eye and they said, judge, we have a conviction that this is what God wants us to do. You say, preacher, that's a tremendous cost. That's a tremendous price. When you have a conviction about something, sir, you're willing to die for it. He had a conviction. He was a man who was not for sale. The devil's philosophy and the world's philosophy this morning is that every man has his price. If you up the ante high enough, he'll break over. And that's exactly what the devil is trying to do with a lot of people today. He's offering this and he offers them that and he offers them something else. And there are people who are being offered things today 
I remember Victor Glenn telling about a young man who was saved, wonderfully saved, in Africa a number of years ago. Brilliant young fellow, had been educated in the United States, gone back to his native land. An oil company came to him and offered him a tremendous salary to work in their employment. And he said, no, God has called me to preach the gospel, carry the good news of Jesus Christ to my people. I'm going to preach to them. They came back and said, you must not have understood. And they doubled the salary offer. And he said, no, you must not have understood. He said, God has called me to preach the gospel. And they came back the third time and doubled their second offer. And he said, you don't understand. He said, I am not for sale. God has called me and I'm going to go with God. Turned down the fabulous offer and it's preached the gospel for a number of years. I want to tell you something, friend. There are some people who are not for sale. There are some people whose allegiance to Jesus Christ and the Word of God places them above price. And every one of us needs to come to this place. And the devil has a way about him. He feels like if he can just keep pressing us and pressing us, he'll wear us down and he'll wear our resistance down. And he just... Uh, one favor after another, and one thing after another. People do the same thing. Well, I can wear them down. I'll, I'll just wear them down. Friend, if it's really God's word, stick to it. Have, have, God, have God's word so in your heart that whatever it is, we are not for sale. Amen. No price can get me to turn from my allegiance to Jesus Christ and my obedience to his word. You and I are going to have our convictions tested. Remuneration, recognition, the offers, whatever they may be. Well, if you'll just give in along this line, it'll be financially profitable to you. I'll make it worth your while. God's people draw lines and say no. Could I suggest something to you this morning in closing and I want you to look about and think about it. Here's a man who was a success. I don't know what your definition of success is. But here's a man, as far as the Bible is concerned, who is a success. However, let's remember this. That being successful in the eyes of the world is not the test of the rightness or wrongness of your conviction. Amen. Are you catching on? Did I say that right? Being successful, as far as the world is concerned, being successful at all is not the test of a conviction. A conviction is based on right or wrong. You know, we live in a world where so many, they've colored so many areas gray. Well, this is, you see, the world's philosophy is 
There's no right, absolutely. There's no wrong, absolutely. It's all relative. It's all, nothing is wrong. It's only wrong out of its setting. It's only wrong out of its place. This has been carried to the extreme until professors are teaching our young people in college in our secular schools and they're telling us in our, in our humanistic society that even things such as premarital sex and things of that nature are not wrong. They are only wrong out of their setting. We're saying it's not wrong to do those immoral things only out of their proper setting if you love the person and if it, the setting is right and the atmosphere is right, go ahead and do it. It's all right. It's right in its proper place. Friend, there is never a proper place for sin. And God's word has some black and white areas. God's word is black and white. There are no gray areas as far as God's word is concerned. God has said, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And brother, sister, he expects us to live according to those rules. Amen. And the man or the woman who lives according to the will of God is a successful individual, whether the world thinks they're successful or not. And the test of success, not whether you won or not, not whether you came out on top or not. Amen. I can tell you about some court cases and so forth where people and churches and schools and some other things, some other institutions have been found at fault legally. But they're still right morally. Are you listening? Ladies and gentlemen, we need to come to the place in our hearts and in our lives until we base our lives on the Word of God. Until we found them there. Until if it costs our head, if it costs our farm, if it costs our fortune, if it costs our family, we're still right. And in being right, thank God, God can take care of the future. God who holds the future in his hand will take care of that thing. Praise the Lord. I want to tell you something, friend. When God finally gives out the rewards and when the meek begin to inherit the earth, if you doubt what I'm saying, if you finally make it into the city and God helps you to make it in, I'd like for you to go visit Naboth's farm. Hallelujah. I want to tell you something. Naboth is going to have a rich piece of ground somewhere on a re rejuvenated earth that no Ahab is going to come and try to take away from him. The meek are going to inherit the earth after all. It's God's uh, the beginning and it's God's right now and God's going to apportion it out. And I believe that God someday is going to say, Naboth, you were true to me. Now you just take this whole whatever it is. God may give him a whole world of farm as far as I know. Praise the Lord. Here was a man who was true to his convictions. The world counted him a fool, but God said, he's a success because he kept the word. And he lived true to the word of God and true to his convictions. Young people, all of us, the siren songs 
are being sung. The enticements are there. What are your convictions? Amen. Brother Griffith used to tell a story about some men in this church who, in Augusta, Kansas, many, many years ago now, Augusta at that time was a real oil town. Between oil and cattle, it was the commerce of the town was pretty well, business of the town was pretty well taken care of. In one year, he saw 70 people join the church, clear-cut conversions. God gave them tremendous revival. Brother Griffith got to preaching against working on the Lord's Day and keeping the Lord's Day holy and some other things like that. And Those men came to him as a body. They said, Brother Griffith, you've been preaching and we've gotten saved and we love the Lord. They said, We're, we have a problem in this area. We'd like for you to tell us what to do. Brother Griffith said, I looked at those men, and they'd appointed one man as their spokesman, but they were all there. But eight or nine or ten of them. And he said, well, boys, I don't know what is going to come of this, but he said, I know this, that we're on the right side of the question. And so he said, I, let's fast and pray about three or four days about the situation, and then let's see what God will do for us. So those men banded together, and they fasted and prayed for those, I think it was three days. At the end of that three-day period, the man who, the two men who were appointed as spokesmen for those men, everyone went into the office, but the two men were the spokespersons. They went into the office of the foreman of that that they worked for in the oil company, they said, we'd like to have a word with you. And so he said, all right, what, what do you want? And they said, you've been <clears throat> making us work on Sunday, and you've, you've told us we'd lose our jobs if we didn't. But they said, we got saved out of the little church. And they told them where the church was. And, of course, everybody knew about the revival. You can't have a revival where that many people get saved in a town. People don't know about it. Told them about the revival and said, we got saved. And we're living for the Lord, raising our families up to love the Lord and serve the Lord. And said, we find that the rules of this company, the rules that you have set up, violate God's Word and violate the principles of the Word of God. And they said, we've come to tell you we appreciate our jobs here and we thank God for them. But we can no longer work on the Lord's day and violate His day be Christians. Brother Griffith said the, they came back and told him the story. He said the foreman dropped his head for a minute and then he looked up and he said, well, boys, he said, there are plenty of other men who like to work on Sunday. He said, you men go to church, be Christians, raise your families up to fear God. And if we need something done around here, I'll find somebody else to do it on the Lord's day. Brother Griffith said those men came back to the study. They found me in the study praying. He said they came bursting in the church, shouting and praising God. He said we had a hallelujah camp meeting time. Those men worked for that oil company, provided for their families, 
They're most of them dead and gone to heaven now. But they would not violate the word of God. Say, preacher, what about their jobs? You see, if they'd have lost their jobs, they'd have still been right. Do you understand that? If it had taken the other attitude, if it had said, get out of here, if you won't do it on Sunday, get out, that would still be right. And the God of heaven who looks after his children, who sees the sparrow fall, would have taken care of those men. Amen. I am convinced, as much as I am standing in this pulpit right now, I believe that God will have taken care of those men because they stood for what was right. Our problem is we are so afraid of the face of men. We are so afraid of the, of the face of flesh that we will not take our stand. Friend, let's come to the place where we draw some lines. And by the grace of God, here we stand. Thank God for people who will not set out, but who will walk according to the commandments of Almighty God. Shall we stand for a word of prayer? I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fight. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA.